Hey everyone, it's Daisha. You're about to hear a very cool episode. In fact, I think it's one of my personal favorites that we've done with a guy named Tom Steenland. He's this one-man band who founded Starkland Records, uh, which is an independent, nonprofit, alternative classical music label that's based in Boulder, Colorado. I think I love this episode because Tom brings this very sort of punk rock aesthetic to classical music. And I don't really know how to describe it. He just kind of doesn't spend a lot of time thinking and planning. He just seems to know stuff, and then he does it, um, which is how I'd like to be when I grow up, which is sure to happen any day now. Um, when you, too, fall in love with the music and story of Starkland Records, you can thank us by heading over to iTunes and subscribing to, rating, and reviewing our show. Every time we get a subscription, an angel gets its wings. True story. Okay, enjoy the episode. I'm Daisha Clay, host of The Classical Classroom, a show where experts teach me about classical music. I used to know very little about classical music, and now I'd like to think that I know slightly more than very little. What I have learned is that classical music isn't the obscure, static art form that I thought that it was. In fact, it's a dynamic force that's doing amazing things in the world right now. Welcome to a Classical Classroom sub-series, Music Works. We'll go behind the scenes at concerts, hear amazing artist stories, and look at all the ways that classical music is working in the world today. Hello, everybody. This is Daisha Clay, and welcome to a Classical Classroom Music Works episode. Today, we are going to hear the harrowing story of a uh, an independent music label. Um, Tom Steenland, who heads up Starkland Records, which he's done for the last 25 years, is joining us from Boulder, Colorado today. He founded the label in 1991, and since then, he's released uh, nearly a hundred different composers on this label, from what I understand. Starkland is also a nonprofit that works directly with composers, which I hope we get to talk some more about. And it focuses on primarily contemporary and experimental music. So, Tom Steenland, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, okay, let's start with you. Um, talk about your musical background. I know you've been actually in the business for about 40 years, but, but where did you come from and how did you get into this? Well, my first experience with music was actually uh, in high school. There was a piano in my home and I was one of those rare kids that asked to take piano lessons. So I had some interest, and then I went to college to study physics, where there was no music, but somewhere along the line, I decided I was more interested in music than becoming a physicist. <laughs> so I then, at a neighboring college, was able to study some music, and then I moved to Boulder as a to attend graduate school studying composition. Mm -hmm. And I can't really explain why that attraction was there, but I just was initially attracted to music, then the classical music, and then the contemporary classical music. So, so that was my beginning. Did you come from a musical family? Not particularly. Uh, my parents, I think at one point in their past, had played piano, and they just thought that when they set up the, their home, they just thought that a home should have a piano for some reason. Mm -hmm. and, and they never played it, but it was just sitting there, and I thought it would be interesting to, to play. Mm -hmm. 
So you just literally were like, well, this seems interesting. Yes. I'm going to pursue this. And then and then you wound up loving it and just yeah, turned it into yeah, your entire life. Yeah, it's hard to say where that comes from because uh, my parents weren't classical music people, but uh, I was just inherently drawn to it. What did you listen to at home growing up? Like, if they weren't into classical music, what were they listening to? Well, this was a, a long time ago before people really had sophisticated stereos. So I really started my own listening with, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so it was all sort of the classic rock stuff that was going on at the time, you know, the Beatles and Jefferson Airplane and the Doors and so forth. And then when I went to college and started to study theory and harmony, et cetera, then I began to learn the mainstream classical repertoire like Beethoven and and hearing the Bartok string quartets for the first time was a huge revelation that that was sort of a big eye or ear opening experience. When you heard Bartok, what pricked up your ears? Well, it was just terrific music. It was exciting. It it clearly was doing something different than music had done before, and it was very um, visceral, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. The, the rhythms are exciting, and, and you just you hear something distinctive going on. And, and then I began to hear all the other 20th century stuff, Stravinsky, etc. Mm-hmm. So realizing that, it made me interested in contemporary music in general, and realizing that, hey, there were composers living today that were also composing music, and and that seemed pr- pretty uh, interesting to me. Yeah, what is it that draws you to the the new? I kind of feel the same way. I'm just I'm curious. Uh, like, what is it? Is it the the sound, the the uniqueness of the ideas? Like, what what draws you to that? For one thing, it makes classical music a living art. If mm. you just play the standard repertoire, it becomes sort of like a Museum, and I, I mean, I think all those pieces are wonderful, but there's something exciting about knowing that there's a living composer, maybe there in the audience, that has recently composed this piece, and it it if it's a good piece, it somehow relates to the the time we're in and what's going on in the world, and also th- there's a sense of discovery i suppose that you you go to a new music concert you don't quite know what's going to happen mm-hmm. and you might hear four pieces three of which you might not like very much but one of which think wow that was terrific i want to know more about this so there's an excitement to the new that's different than hearing beethoven's fifth for the 50th time <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's something that's it's really interesting about the classical music world is that it's you know mostly made up of people who are trying to put a, a fresh spin on very old stuff yes you know they're 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 taking a piece by mozart a piece by beethoven and then they're um they're bringing it to life in a new way and the idea that new music is has a completely different take, like um, yes, yes, that's not something that you actually that I actually talk to people very much about in the classical music world. I think that's really interesting. Why 
did you start Starkland? What 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 did what said to you, okay, here's a niche that needs to be filled? <laughs> well, there are three reasons why I started Starkland. First, to back up a little bit, when I was a um, student at the University of Colorado Boulder, one of my professors had the idea that a record label could be a nonprofit tax-exempt organization. Huh. This is back in the mid-'70s, and that was a very unusual concept. There was really no existing example. I mean, I know today there are many such labels, but back then there weren't. So they spent, the board spent like two years with the IRS to get the uh, taxes and status, which they eventually did. Hmm. And then they just assumed that everything would work out, the money would flow in and recordings would get made, but they didn't really have a plan. And I was a student of this professor, and he saw my interest. So eventually, they essentially let me take over OWL recording. Hmm. So for 15 years, I ran OWL, put out LPs back in the ancient LP era. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really where I learned all the basics about organizing the music and recording sessions and graphic design and promotion and all that. But there was a, a, a strange thing with Al that it existed. The recordings could only be funded if there were grants available and grants were available only to people who had the appropriate credentials. And that usually meant winning a big prize or being associated with the university. So it tended to mean that I was just releasing academic or what was then called uptown music. Hmm. Uptown. But it happened over the 80s that there was a really exciting scene developing that was called back then downtown music, which included people like Philip Glass and Steve Reich, hmm. Terry Riley, and Bang in the Can was, was formed then. So that world was really interesting to me, but it, it was the downtown, the uptown worlds were completely separated. They were just not connected, and it was nothing that I could do with Al, but I was very interested in that. Uh, so that was the first factor. The second factor was around 90 or 91, the world was converting from LPs to CDs, and all of Al's catalog was in a um, in LPs. So that was mm -hmm. going to be awkward for Al. And then the other reason was when I was with Al, Al originally released music by Todd Dockstadter. And I became a big fan of that music. And those LPs had sold out. So all those factors came together around 1991. And one day when I was out for a jog, I think, it suddenly hit me that what I would do is I would start a new label, they would all be CDs. I would be able to explore the downtown alternative music that I thought was really exciting and interesting. Mm -hmm. And that my first two releases would be a reissue of all of Todd Dockstadter's classic music huh. on CDs. And that's what I did. What did you like about his music? Like, what was what appealed to you? Well, it really stood out. Um, it was distinctive. It was powerful. It was such a contrast to the electronic music that was being composed in the institutions, which for me was fairly dry and sterile and not very involving. Todd just was self-taught. He did not come from the academic world. He just liked sound and shaped it in a way 
that really made a strong impression to me that the whole feeling of it, the whole approach, the form and the content was different than other electronic music that I'd heard. Mm -hmm. So I became very attracted to it, as were many other people. Um, so I've kind of been involved with his music for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I, as I say, I began Starkland with two CDs of his music, and I've kind of come full circle because Starkland's most recent release was Todd Docksetter's music that was left over, found on his hard drive after he died um, oh, wow. about a year ago. So I, it's, and, and I sort of feel indirectly responsible for all that because when the Starkland CDs came out, we didn't know what the reaction would be. I mean, we were releasing music that was maybe 25 years old and we used older technology. Todd was really worried it wouldn't come across well. But the CDs were a big success. They got great reviews, and that re-inspired him to go back to composing. Mm -hmm. Although, but he didn't publish that much, but he built up a tremendous amount of, uh, of sound files. I think on his hard drive, it was discovered he had something like 4,200 sound files. So mm -hmm. those were whittled down to the 15 tracks that appear on the, the CD that was re recently released. got the the label started I mean you started you started out with um, somebody whose work you were reissuing yes. who was your first victim though like who who was the <laughs> first uh, artist that you actually like got into the studio and said all right we're gonna cut a record well it was I did a compilation CD for the third CD I was friends with Paul Drescher and who was the composer in the Berkeley area Mm -hmm. And so that was the fourth CD was all of his music. And one of the more interesting stories is a CD that happened early on was with a composer named Philip Bimstein. Mm -hmm. And he lived and still lives in Utah. And one of his neighbors was a guy named Garland Hershey, who was a farmer. And mm -hmm. Philip one day asked Garland, who had cows, he said, well, why do your cows moo? <laughs> and Garland told him the answer and regaled him with other stories. And Philip thought this was this was such a charming, interesting fellow that he began to record all those conversations. 
And he ended up making a piece that featured the cows mooing and mm-hmm. Garland telling stories. And then he added some musical background that sort of emulated the speech patterns of Garland. Mm-hmm. And that piece became a big hit. So I put out that CD, it was Philip Bimstein's Girl and Hershey's Cows, and it was it it really came across well. I mean, radio stations loved to play it. I think the first time they played it on the public radio station in San Francisco, they received over ninety phone calls. Wow! I think it was the <laughs> second most ever that they had received. Awesome. And and it was a good example of the alternative scene that I talked about. This was not a kind of piece that would come out of the academic world, yeah. but. It opened up a whole career for him. I mean, the CD's got all these reviews, and mm-hmm. he went on to get grants from the National Endowment for the Arts. They meet the composer. He, his music was then performed, I don't know, in places like Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, I think even London's Royal Opera House. Mm-hmm. So it was a good example of, I think, what Starkland, a small independent label, can do. Mm-hmm. And the power of CDs and helping a composer's music get to be widely known. Yeah. Well, tell me how you've got this sort of like punk rock classical label. You know yeah. how how are you how are you drawing artists to this label? Like like out of the gate, you're you're this young upstart. Are people coming to you? Are you seeking them out? How does that process work? Well, it's been a mixture. There was a. New Music Composers Conference in Telluride, Colorado, years ago. And it was there that I met, say, Charles Zomarkanian, and I eventually released a CD of his music. Philip Bimstein, that's where I met him and heard the Garland Hershey's Cows piece for the first time. And I met Paul Drescher there. So in part, it was by going to New Music Festivals Mm -hmm. and... I had kind of a track record because the Todd Docksetter CDs were so successful mm-hmm. that people could tell I knew what I was doing and could get exposure. So it initially came out of friendships and music that uh, I liked. And I mm-hmm. earlier generally sought out people myself and proposed to them projects. And then as Starkland grew more and more, it's now shifted to where now people are constantly sending me ideas for projects. So it's kind of now a combination of projects that I specifically initiate Uh. along with projects that people have sent to me. Thank you. 
What does it mean that Starkland is a nonprofit and that you work directly with composers? How is that different from how other labels work? Well, there are a number of nonprofit labels today. And Starkland initially was not a nonprofit. It was just my own label. Mm -hmm. And then several years ago, I converted it to a 501c3 tax exempt. It it helps with um, fundraising. And also at this point now, there are grants available Mm -hmm. for the indie labels, which they were not a few decades ago. So it also helps, allows people to make donations. In general, it just helps with fundraising in in terms of being nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And then your other question was? Oh, so you work directly with composers. How is that different from how uh, a more traditional label might function? Well, I think all labels will will work with composers in various ways. It, It happens that a lot of the composers I work with do electronic or electroacoustic music, so they often have recorded the music in their home studios. Mm. And most of these composers are independent. They work full-time as being composers. They don't teach at universities, and they are very much do-it-yourself type yeah. of people. So they often are in a position to create their own recordings and then they send me the the master tapes Ah. so like most of the composers i work with are in new york and san francisco i there are not many local composers i've worked with Mm -hmm. so it's it's not surprising it's typical of them to have access to equipment and to because they perform the music a lot live they have their own electronics that they need so they create their own master tapes Mm -hmm. interesting so you're they're literally sending you their recordings and then and then you're you're like taking those and working with them like the yes. actual recordings from the composers. Yeah, after I get the recording, uh you know, there's mastering and then there's manufacturing the CDs and doing the graphic design and then all the sales and promotion and and so forth. All, all of which for most of these of these years I've done myself, only me, yeah. Yeah, that's what I understand is that that Starkland is kind of a a one man operation. Is that is that true? And and like, how do you do that? <laughs> what does that entail? Well, for most of the years, it it has been true. I've been called a one man army, which may be overstating well, things. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you should well, keep that. <laughs> for, I did a lot of the graphic design myself. I just began to. I originally worked with graphic designers, but I realized I was directing them so much, saying, I want this and I want that, <laughs> that eventually when the software came out that allowed me to do it, I just started to do it myself. And that, and I have a certain vision of what I think, say, a booklet should look like. We always have notes from the composers, which I think is important. And I also mm-hmm. have fairly famous people write the introductions, which sometimes other labels don't do. I believe in the annotation that a lot of other new music labels today, they are just about the graphics. They have really beautiful packaging, but very little notes about the music. And mm-hmm. I can see that that's one choice, but I, I think that the that the composer's comments are really important, for example. And then I also did mastering myself for years. And mm-hmm. As you can imagine, as I did more, all that became kind of overwhelming. So I 
am now actually trying to increase Starkland's output by I'm having someone else do the graphic design. I have one of the top mastering engineers in the country do the mastering. And uh, that's how I've been able to sort of grow and maybe make my my life a little bit easier, too. <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you think that it says that you're this very sort of DIY person? You like to be very hands-on with with the product that you're you're putting out. And you're also working with people who are very DIY oriented, like everybody's, it seems in this process, kind of on their own, like you've got composers who are making music on their own, then sending you recordings on their own, and then you're taking it and doing that. What, what do you think that that says about you? Well, I think overall, there's sort of a, been a revolution in contemporary classical music, I mean, back when I was a student in the 70s, the new music was generally academic, generally not that accessible, and generally had a really tiny audience and was almost completely removed from the real world around it. And now today, this, the situation has changed dramatically. I mean, the new music scene has never been better than it is today. There's a... Mm huge variety of new music being composed. The the uptown, downtown division no longer is really there. Mm-hmm. You know, back then when the Kronos Quartet started, they started out with the idea they would only play new music, and that was essentially almost unheard of at the time. And then since then, as I'm sure you know, there are a lot of groups today, like the International Contemporary Ensemble and the Bang and a Can All-Stars mm-hmm. that all exist just performing new music. I I just heard Broomful of Teeth last night, and um, they only perform new music, only that's for uh, choral new music. So Mm -hmm. the the world has changed dramatically, and I think it was a rebellion against sort of the traditional uptown world that was so removed by the in part the baby boomers grew up loving rock and roll mm-hmm. and they that connection and power it had seemed to be something they didn't want to disregard and sort of retreat uh-huh. into the university so i i think that there was a big rebellion against the status quo and the other thing that changed a lot is is technology all the the composers that do their own recordings, all the technology became affordable yeah. to create electronic music. When back in Todd Dockstadter's day, he he would have no access to that. The way he recorded his music was he worked at a recording studio during the day, and then he would sneak in at night and use the equipment to create his music because <laughs> the equipment was very expensive and you generally didn't have access to it unless you went to something like the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, which rejected Todd's application. And so the, the technology was difficult, but then the technology changed and all of that recording technology, electronic music equipment, all of that became much more affordable yeah. and it um, allowed people to to do more on their own. Yeah. 
So it's kind of a combination of this like cultural spirit of of rebellion that that kind of came, was born out of rock and roll and and that whole aesthetic that kind of like lent to this DIY thinking and and a tendency toward working on your own and the technology sort of getting to the point where it was allowing people to like do these things on their own to do new things on their own yeah it's an entirely different world i mean back then all performances of contemporary classical uh-huh. generally happened in the big main concert halls and so forth and in the formal traditional places but the alternative scene that developed in the 70s and 80s with Philip Glass and all those people, they were performing in lofts in downtown Manhattan. And, mm-hmm. and that really continues today. The, the uh, new music world has branched out beyond the concert hall and they uh-huh. will perform in all kinds of venues that almost pointedly are not the traditional place because they want to make it more accessible. I think people are sometimes put off by the formality of the traditional classical yeah. concert. But if you can go to a bar or something and hear someone play, it's it's a completely different uh, vibe. We've talked some about how things have have changed artistically and culturally, but I think I think um, something that a lot of people are talking about is how the music industry itself has changed so much. Can you talk about how that change has affected? Starkland, or has it? Has have you just evolved with the times? Well, the yeah, the the change, of course, the, the big dramatic change today is the is the switch to the digital world, and mm-hmm. that's that's been dramatic. I mean, I went through one transition from LPs to CDs, but even with selling CDs, we there was income from that. But today, when the world is clearly switching to digital which means yeah. streaming really the the amount if if we have a track played on spotify say the income that we get from one track playing is 0.004 cents oh my god so that's like four wow. one thousandths of a of a cent it's essentially nothing wow so th- that's uh a huge problem for not only me, but for all labels. And I mean, I read about this every day and, and I don't know what the, the answer is. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's a problem. Some people say physical CDs would go away completely. I don't know if that's, that's true or not. Uh, for example, you find people saying today, well, I've never purchased a CD or I haven't purchased a CD in 10 years or something. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is probably all the music that they're downloading or streaming originally came from CDs. Mm-hmm. The, and so the CD is often the starting point, And it's also treated more seriously by 
critics and so forth. Uh, you send to see uh, a digital file, an MP3 file of the New York Times, and there's zero chance it gets reviewed. Mm-hmm. If you send them the nicely produced CD, there's at least a chance they will consider it. And mm-hmm. the other thing is people like physical objects. I think people like having collections. Um, it's different to have rows of LPs or stacks of CDs versus saying, oh, I have a thousand songs on my iPhone. Right. So so it's unknown, I think, if CDs will go away completely. That's sort of the trendy hip prediction is that CDs will completely disappear and we'll just listen to streaming. And I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, people's relationship to music, I read some of um, one of Alex Ross's books and he was talking about how, you know, Back in the day, you know, music was something that you went to to participate in. It was something that you, you know, initially went into churches and places of worship to experience, and then later into more secular venues, into people's living rooms and things like that. But it was something that you you went and did, <laughs> and then and then um, you know when the microphone was invented and we were able to capture recording, people were able to take this home with them. And that changed our relationship to music. How do you think that this, I don't know, how do do you think that this new evolution, where you don't even have to have a physical object in hand to listen to the music, how do you think that is going to change people's relationship to music? Well, I, I think what you said was really appropriate in the past in various ways. People made deliberate decisions to go to a a church or the king's palace or whatever right, yeah. to hear music. And then even when uh, the LP technology came out, when you listened, you put your LP on and played it and sat down and listened to it. So mm-hmm. it was still an active decision. I'm going to listen to this and then I'm, I'm not going to do 10 other things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now the digital revolution and listening on smartphones, et cetera, it lets music just be background music Mm -hmm. and it's not your primary focus and I think that that's unfortunate and Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons that people accept the poor sound that is often associated with mp3s and those crappy little earbuds that (laughs) people listen to is because it's background for them you know they're sitting on the subway and they're listening or they're um maybe doing answering email and then they Mm -hmm. they have this music on they don't particularly care about the the sound quality. So I think that's in a way unfortunate, but there are still people that are sincerely interested and then, and then people are still going to concerts, which is um, encouraging. So there, there is an audience there that really wants to to focus on the music. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of them may be the people who still buy CDs and and sit down and just listen to them. But that's yeah. certainly less common, and I don't... In a way, it's good because the music is much more widely available than it was in the past. Mm-hmm. If you issue your CD and then it appears on Spotify or Amazon or iTunes, it's available to anyone who has access to the Internet. So that hugely increases the audience. So I guess that sort of offsets the fact that <laughs> yeah. People treat it as a lot of people treat it as background music, so it's yeah. a it's a mixed thing, and the future to me is unclear. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's interesting to me that that you know music used to be a participatory thing, a thing that you did with other people that you had to like if you wanted to to hear music, you had to do it with other people. Yes. Not not to mention the musicians themselves. And now, things like earbuds they seem to be sort of used in a in a, a fashion that keeps people isolated. It's a very sort of uh, you know solo activity that you do to to listen to music. Yeah, it's usually it's usually different, and uh, uh, there may be some good things uh-huh. associated with it, but there are also things that aren't so good. But, but like you said, now music is more widely available to to more people. It's it's you know definitely reaching greater numbers, and you know I guess it could be argued that people are then taking that music that they're listening to and going out to shows. And yes, I, I think that, that more happens. artists than they would have, yeah. And it enables um, success to people that might not have already found it because you can discover someone that way, and then you can you can look into more of their recordings, or you can go to their concerts. Or as um, before, it was much harder to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me what. Starkland has coming up next. Like, what is what is the future of Starkland? Who are you putting out next? The next CD is from a composer in New York uh, called David Lee Myers, and he is a guy who sort of invented his own genre. What he discovered years ago was that if he hooked up a whole bunch of processing devices like guitar effects pedals and other units that modify sound but if he just hooked them all up together without any input sound and he turned them all up it would the system would start to produce its own music mm-hmm. just from the sort of an internal feedback loop which he began to call feedback music And then he really got into building his own hardware where he could control each parameter. And so he can then shave the music some, but it's all generated just by these uh, electrons that are whirling around. So he calls it ether music sometimes, too. Ooh, that's a cool name. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's different. It has inherently a different kind of um, feel and uh, I find it pretty intriguing. And he, it also happens that he worked with Todd Dockstadter and they did some oh. things together. Um, that's eventually how he and I got to know each other. But this is solely his music and solely from this genre that he really invented. That will be the, the next project. Yes. And I have several others in the works. There's a new music pianist in New York, Kathy Sapove, who's one of the leading new music pianists. So there's a, a, a CD of hers in the works. Mm-hmm. And what else? There's a group from Pennsylvania called the Naked Eye Ensemble. They have a bunch of younger composers. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing a CD with them. So those are some of the upcoming releases. Nice. Well, Tom Steenland, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about Starkland Records. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Classical Classroom. 
for more classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. You can follow us on the social media that is conveniently gathered there for you. You can email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to, rate us and review us on iTunes. It is awesome when you do. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to Mark DiClaudio for his piercing, sure-shot eyes. Thanks to Tom Steenland for being on the show today. And a shout-out to George Heathcote for the use of his tunes for our Music Works intro. If you want to learn more about George and hear some of his music, go to georgeheathcote.com. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>